Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by journalist, presenter, animal lover, and avid rambler Claire Balding. She is also the current president of the RFL, so my conversation with Claire was timely, given that the Rugby League World Cup kicked off last weekend. Frankly, I could have spoken to Claire for hours. She really was a superb guest. And in this episode, we discuss how she started her career, the challenges she faced back then, and how she overcame them. We discuss women's sport and how attitudes have changed over her career. And in a similar vein to Will Greenwood, 20-odd episodes ago, we discuss the blurred lines between the worlds of sport and business. Finally, she shares with us her advice for our younger listeners. Now, I hope you enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed recording it. This is the Why Invest podcast. Bebelding, welcome to the podcast. Bear, let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? If you remember the book Watership Down and indeed the very scary film, Watership Down is near Highclere, between Highclere and Kingsclere. And it actually runs into the top of the downs that are where the gallops are at home. So I grew up in Kingsclere, in the village of Kingsclere. So Hampshire, Berkshire border, sort of in the middle of the triangle of Newbury, Basingstoke and Winchester. But the easiest, most romantic way of saying it is I grew up next to Watership Down. <laughs> I see um, it. That does sound romantic. Yeah. And my dad was a racehorse trainer and my brother is a racehorse trainer and both my grandfathers were racehorse trainers. And essentially how I wasn't, you know, trained to gallop round in circles rather than set school, I don't know. But that was the world in which I grew up. I mean, idyllic really, but surrounded by horses and ponies and dogs and very much the kids at the bottom of the pecking order in terms of importance. And I went to school at the local primary school in Kingsclear. And then when I was 10, I went off to Down House. And I was very young for my year, actually. I was the youngest in school. It's interesting. I went back there to give a talk a few years ago and I met one of the pupils who'd been in that talk, you know, who's now sort of 40 or something. And she said, oh, you were her girl at my school. I said, yeah, I was. But... I said, that's not all. She said, oh, no, don't worry. I know I was there when you came back to give the talk. And the teachers had expected it to be all this sort of, you know, success story of head of house, head girl gets to Cambridge. And actually, I started off with the story that I knew the girls didn't know. And most of the teachers were hoping I wasn't going to mention, which was that I was suspended in my second year for shoplifting and dehoused and nearly expelled. So, and, that I, and I did not get into Cambridge first time. And then I didn't get into Bristol or Exeter on my second ACA form. I did three. I basically took two years out between school and university, which I could because I was so young for my year. But um, it was very much a story of these are the things that went wrong. And I, so I said to this girl that I met, I said, so what did you think? And she went, oh my God, we loved it. She said, and my takeaway was you could be really naughty and get away with it. I said, no, that's not meant to be the takeaway. The takeaway is you keep going, you can, you are allowed to reinvent yourself. Anyway, she laughed and she said, no, 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 that's what we all thought. So yeah, it was a, a sort of troubled start at Down House and then kind of worked through it. And sport really helped me. I played lacrosse and I you know loved being part of a team and I loved you know I loved slobbing around in sports gear as well to be honest um but it gave everyone a focus that wasn't you you know and, and that's why that's what I still love about sport that it I think turns your vision out and you play something that matters nothing not at all but it's everything while you do it 
and you play for your team and you're playing for other people and it's not just about you. Yes, of course, your performance matters, but you're doing it for other people and that's what you care about. Um, and I found that very helpful. And also I went, we were sent on an outward bound course and that made a big difference to me. I, that kind of changed everything. It sounds like, Claire, that persistency was the key and, and particularly in getting your place at Cambridge um, <laughs> where you studied English. Um, what happened when you left university? Where did you head next? I had done a lot of public speaking both at school and university and at the Cambridge Union and had met quite a lot of politicians, which I have to be honest with you, put me off a career <laughs> as a politician completely. But I had a very strong belief that I, you know, I was very idealistic. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to change the way people thought. I don't know how. Um, and I thought in my idealistic way that politics was not the answer because if you went to politics, you had to toe the party line. If you went into journalism, you would be able to write about things that would change people's point of view, it, I thought. So I had this idea in my head that I wanted to write for newspapers uh, and that I long-term wanted to write books. Obviously, I read English, as you mentioned, so I was very, you know, wrapped up in the world of literature and really do still believe it's hugely, you know, valuable and important. Anyway, I, as it happens, I was trying to get a job on a newspaper. I did get a bit of a column on the sporting life, uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, very much in the racing world. And that was the world I knew and understood. But for, it's funny, this, about sports journalism. People have their specialities and it's really important to know what your speciality is and not, I, I, you know, for all that I've tried to break away from racing and have, have probably ultimately very much succeeded in doing that, don't be ashamed of what you know, of, of the language you speak, of the expertise you have, because so many people don't have it. You know, lots of people are into men's football in particular. Fewer people are into women's football. You know, lots of people might be into tennis, but fewer people are into squash. You know, make sure you know what your what your field of expertise is. And I think this probably applies to any business in the financial world as much as anything. When you know something really well, you have a value. You bring something to the party that not many other people have. So knowing racing gave me the chance to get on radio. And that was, you know, luck as much as anything, but also huge generosity from the guy who was the racing correspondent for the BBC called Cornelius Lysett. And he had spoken to me about what did I want to do? And he said, look, you've got a voice that might work on radio. And I did have a very deep voice for, for a girl in her early 20s. And I think their bass notes help. And, you know, lots of research tells you that, you know, human beings are conditioned towards trusting voices that have bass notes. And it's not, it's pretty sexist, well, to be honest. Well, to Margaret Thatcher, exactly. Yeah, to well, Margaret quite. Thatcher. It's... It's pretty damn sexist because it automatically assumes that, you know, men do tend to have lower voices earlier in their lives. I think later in life, actually, you know, female voices develop later in life and you get bass notes later. And I know lots of men, actually, whose register is probably higher than mine. And whether that means they are less trusted than me, I've no idea. <laughs> but anyway, the point being, Cornelius said, look, you ought to come in and do a voice test. And, and if you sound all right on microphone, there's a job I think I could probably you know, we'll try you at. And that was doing early morning racing bulletins. So the one thing I could do is get up really early in the morning. And I did that. And I could write and I could touch type because I'd done, a, my mother had made me do a secretarial course. I say that, you know, my mother made me, she did make me, I didn't want to. I'm now forever grateful for it because obviously I write 
a lot and I write books now. And my God, if you type fast, it doesn't half make a difference. Anyway, I got this job on a part-time basis doing early morning racing bulletins. And then my boss or the boss of uh, BBC Sports, Radio Sports, said he wanted me, would I consider being a trainee, which which I hadn't considered because I didn't know the opportunity was there. And the answer is it wasn't there. They were just starting Five Live and they wanted to train up younger sports presenters and they wanted for me to do this course to see what it was like and to feed back what I thought could be improved. And essentially they said to me, we want you doing everything except racing because you sound so confident on racing and we want you doing everything else. So really interesting then, you're thrown into worlds that you don't have any connections or contacts or particular knowledge of and you have to really do your homework and think. I suppose there is this kind of natural oscillation in one's career between like specialism and generalism. And, you know, there is always, you're you're always kind of, you have these sort of forks in the road where you're like, okay, crikey, I'm now going to lose my specialism and, and go into something more general. How did that feel at that time? It felt very risky because at the same time, the satellite channels were starting to spring up everywhere and racing for the first time was going to have a committed full-time channel. And they offered me a job. And that was at a salary that was significantly more. I mean, not quite five times, but certainly four times more than the BBC were offering me to do this trainee course. You know, they were going to give me a staff contract, but only as a trainee and on a very, very low um, low starting point. You know, compared to all my mates that were going to the city and being lawyers and whatever else, it felt like a bit of indulgence, but... It was 1995. I was 24. I thought, right, I want to do this. The Olympics coming up in 1996 in Atlanta. I want to go to the Olympics. You know, my dream had always been to ride at an Olympic Games. If I couldn't do that, which I knew I couldn't, um, the next best thing for me was try and get there as a broadcaster. So when the racing channel offered me a job, they were pretty cross when I turned it down. And I remember the guy saying, looking at me and saying, fine. He said, I think you're making the biggest mistake ever. We'll make a star out of someone else. And I just looked at him. I'm afraid that sounds threatening. <laughs> I just looked at it was a bit. But I said, but you can't send me to the Olympics. You'll never be able to send me to the Olympics. And he said, oh, dream on. And I just thought, you don't understand. That's what I want to do. That's... That's where I want to be. And everyone, when I got to Atlanta and I did uh, Atlanta for, for Five Live, reporting on the equestrian events, but also the mountain biking because it came through the horse park, also the modern pentathlon because it was out there. You know, I just loved it. I, I mm. thought it was great. And everyone was saying, oh, you should have been in Barcelona. Barcelona was brilliant. I was like, no, but I think this is great. And Atlanta was famously like the worst Olympics ever. So because that was my starter point and I thought it was brilliant, mm. everything after it was a huge, you know, I, I mean, it was just such an eye-opener. Sydney was fabulous and Athens yeah. and Beijing and obviously London was was just the, the pinnacle. It was, yeah. it was it was superb, yeah. And Cloud? change tax slightly and, and talk about the similarities between the world of business and, and investment, which is what we're in, um, and sport. And um, we had, oh, it must have been 20 episodes ago, we had a brilliant um, conversation with Will Greenwood and Ben Fennell, who had just written a book on teamship and this importance of, of building teams. And actually, there is a lot of similarity between being a good team player um, not necessarily needing to be the CEO, but you know, needing to be a good CFO or a COO. 
and you know being supportive within a team i wonder if you can draw any parallels between sport and business working in a team across either arena yeah definitely i i think always looking out for other people trying to get the best out of everyone around you you know in the world i live and exist in communication is absolutely key and i think sport teaches you that as well and you can't always communicate with words because in sport you can't always be heard quite often if it's a tactical you know play that you're calling out you don't really want the opposition to know what you're talking about so Mm. you've got to develop a code but also you've got to trust each other hugely now i quite often work with co-presenters now who are not as experienced as i am i.e they haven't done they haven't just haven't been around as long as i have and i am really conscious of trying to help in the most practical ways i can of saying look you know, this feels like a really big thing to get your head around. Take a Commonwealth Games, for example. We've got loads of different nations and regions and, you know, there will be a lot of sports that you don't necessarily know the rules to, um, a lot of competitors that you've not seen or know much about before. Anisha Guhar was doing her first Commonwealth Games this time around. And she rang me and she said, I just, you know, the book. So we get sent a research book that's massive. She said, the book's just arrived and I don't know what to do. And I said, don't panic. I said, listen, there are, definitely read the opening chapters and know what you need to know on the days you need to know it. I said, so when you go to the back of the book, it'll give you the medals on each day, but also make sure you know when each competition is starting. And I said, don't be afraid. You know, she's a cricket expert. I said, make sure you own your sport and decide with JJ Chalmers, who she was presenting with. I said, you decide with JJ what you're going to take and what he's going to take, and then trust him to do that. And I did the same at the Olympics with Alex Scott. And I said, unless you feel strongly about this, I said, I'll take care of swimming, cycling. You do athletics for the main part, but I'll be there to back you up if you need me. You do triathlon because I know that you'll be able to watch that live because it was on late evening, but we could watch it. I said, I'll pick up the other stuff that's happened overnight. Don't worry about the hockey. Do you know what I mean? You just split yeah. it up. I said, obviously you do the football and you know anything else mm. you really care about, you you want to do, you take it, but tell me. I said, because those divisions of, you know, work, you can't necessarily know everything all the time. But if you do the right sort of prep, you can, you know, to make the point again, you know what you need to know when you need to know it. And that's what I've become quite good at of knowing doing the right prep at the right time it doesn't mean you won't get caught out it doesn't mean you won't make mistakes but at least you're trying to be you know sensible about it tactical about it well it sounds like you might have even taken on a bit of a mentorship type role yeah and i really enjoy that and i love watching other people you know gain confidence and get better because they do really quickly i really enjoy that I wouldn't change tack again. I mean, this year has obviously been a phenomenal year for women's sport. I mean, you know, there's obviously the Lionesses earlier this year. Um, I wonder if you can cast your mind back and, and think how have attitudes changed since you started your career? Um, is it chalk and cheese? There are still people who I had somebody just the other week sit down next to me and go, Girl, that women's football is a bit overrated, isn't it? And I looked at him, I thought, Are you winding me up? And he really meant it. And I was like, how much did you watch of the Euros? Oh, I watched enough. I thought, no, how much did you watch? Yes, there are good games of football and bad games of football. Eventually, I said to him, who do you support? And he said, Crystal Palace. And I just laughed. I went, oh, okay, quality matters then. Anyway, that's not to be disparaging about Crystal Palace. But there are plenty of men's matches that are not great either. Football is a very frustrating sport to watch. And the best athletes 
you know, the best girls in terms of sporting ability were for 50 years told they couldn't play football and their parents certainly weren't going to support it and they couldn't play on FA-affiliated pitches and there was no funding and no grassroots support. So, of course, the best athletes, they're not idiots. They went into tennis. Eventually, they went into golf because golf was very well funded. They played hockey because it was an Olympic sport and it was played in a lot of schools. They played netball, not an Olympic sport, but a Commonwealth Games sport. They did gymnastics, they did swimming, they did athletics. They didn't play football. And actually, Mm. it's interesting, you look at the history of women's cricket. Funnily enough, women's cricket was being played in a lot of schools and then stopped being played. The Women's World Cup existed before the Men's World Cup because Rachel Hayhoe Flint was such a hugely influential character and brilliant, brilliant woman. Do you know, she used to play for England And then she would write three different match reports under three different pseudonyms for three different newspapers. No way. Yeah, I mean, she's phenomenal. There should be a film made about her. And I just wish she had lived to see what women's cricket has become. Um, Because I think the 100 has made such a difference. But also, when England won the World Cup at Lords, you know, I think that Mm. showed... And in the same way, the Lionesses winning the Euros, it quite often can show what the game can be and who it can appeal to, and particularly with women's football, that you could go to a match at Wembley that is sold out, that is the final of a championship, and you know there won't be any violence, there's no police presence Mm. required, there won't be racism hurled at players. It's a different environment and it's a much better one in so many ways. And I'm just so excited that now sponsors are following that. A A friend of mine who works for a big financial company actually who was at university with me, sent me a message not that long ago saying, look, we're looking to get into sponsoring women's sport. What would you recommend? And, you know, my advice for anyone, anyone listening, absolutely, God, please do. But what do you want out of it? Do you want access to the players? Because if you do, I think women's sport is a terrific option because they are much more conscious of that being an important part of their job. Do you want a big profile for your company's name? If so, choose the right event where it's got live TV coverage, where it's going to get, you know, a huge social media presence as well, because we all know that's important. Do you want to entertain your clients? And if so, again, women's sport, great option, because as I said, (laughs) they're not going to get stuck in the middle of a riot. Um, And I don't say this to denigrate men's sport. I just think that there are, there's quite a lot, I think, men's football in particular ought to be looking at itself saying, we're in danger of really going off track here unless Mm. we correct this path we've taken and I think women's football needs to step up and say hello 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 this is how you do it this is how you can do it that's that what really at a sort of academy level at these big clubs you know are there uh, is there a good women's sort of track as it were and are yeah. they getting better at it and what does that look like compared yeah, to say and, 10 years ago it's, yeah it's interesting because actually Manchester United always had a good academy but they didn't have a women's super league side so there was this massive anomaly that they were bringing through players who were then going and joining Manchester City or Liverpool or Arsenal but yeah Manchester United obviously do now have a very strong team I think they could be real contenders for the title this year and they've only been around in the WSL for about five seasons now maybe Leicester City knew very much very very new um they've got the same facilities and and that's you know Manchester City Leicester City, Reading, actually. Arsenal, they have the same training facilities, but not the same ground. And Brighton have a very good ground, a very good academy, very good training facilities. I mean, yeah, it is all the time expanding. And I think football has a power to reach kids that I think other sports 
can't and don't. Um, Chelsea had they they bought Kings Meadow Stadium. For me, that's not big enough. I think I, I think they should have been more ambitious than that. You know, it's I'd love to have seen them in a ground show with Brentford actually. But anyway, which sports are lagging, and where do you think we need to do more work on this? What are the sort of laggards and moving away from the guy you were well, sitting next to? <laughs> I am president of the of the rugby league and women's rugby league at club level is not yet a professional setup. And we know that very well aware of that. And it's why the World Cup this autumn is so important. And we've got men's, women's and wheelchair World Cups all happening at the same time. It's the most inclusive World Cup of any sport ever. That's never happened in any sport. And the men's and women's finals will be back to back at Old Trafford in November and the wheelchair final will be the night before. I mean, it's really, it's really exciting. And it's a great opportunity to spread the awareness, I think, of of women's rugby league and rugby league generally. It's, you know, we still live in a very class-ridden society where there is an innate snobbery about rugby league because it's dismissed as a northern sport. Well, you know, frankly, bollocks. It's always had to be a quality version of rugby because when it was set up, it was about paying players. It was about paying working class men to play the game for a crowd that was paying for tickets. So the refinements they made to the rules were to make it more, you know, to make sure more tries were scored, to make sure one team didn't dominate possession. So six tackles and you hand the ball over, you know, give both sides a chance. And if they can't do it in that, you know, in six phases, then right, game's up. But you certainly won't have 32 phases, which you, you sometimes see with rugby union. Like, my God, would you get on and do something here? And I love rugby union, but I do think rugby league is not appreciated. So the physicality, the fitness of the players, the skill... What they do as well, obviously, is you're getting towards the end of your six, you know, on the fifth tackle, they will kick to the corner. And the precision of those kicks, and that's something you've seen come in in rugby union, but the precision of those kicks and they land and they backspin like a drop shot, you know, like a mm-hmm. golf shot, like a brilliant mm-hmm. wedge. Flopping, flopping onto the green. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> somebody's there running onto it to score a try in the corner. I mean, it's just brilliant. So what do you think of it? So you mentioned class, but why else do you think the rugby league game hasn't kept up with the union game? Is it sponsorship? Is it money? What, yeah. what are the other reasons? I mean, the, the other reasons are that the RFU is one of the wealthiest um, sporting bodies in the world, makes a phenomenal amount from selling out tickets to Twickenham, obviously, for, for internationals, and can distribute accordingly. Rugby league hasn't had the same internet. It doesn't have a Six Nations or a Five Nations. It has fewer international opportunities and has slightly confusingly sometimes been England and sometimes been Great Britain. There's no denying that the mainstay of the club setup is along the M62 corridor. And despite attempts to break out into London, certainly, um, it has remained fairly centrally a Northern-based game. But to me, that's not... I don't think that's a disadvantage. And that's it's interesting. This World Cup is going to be fascinating because most of the games are being staged in the North. And I think that's quite right. Why would you, particularly given a cost of living crisis, why would you expect fans to pay £200 for a train journey to London and back to watch a sport that they've supported all their lives and you've taken it away from where they actually live. So apart from one of the semi-finals is at the Emirates um, Stadium in London and I th- there are definitely some matches in Coventry and the wheelchair matches at the Copper Box in a lot of them are 
at, at Olympic Stadium in London. But apart from that, you know, the opening games are in Newcastle. There's a lot going on in Leeds and Wigan and Bolton. And it, it's going to be, I think, really well attended. It's on the BBC, so it will have at least, you know, free-to-air coverage with no adverts, really good storytelling, and I hope will be a really good showcase for a sport that I think is very community-based. The players have never lost touch with their roots. You know, they are, again, you know, just going back, when you look at the history of sports and the structure of them, there's historically been a salary cap in rugby league, and that's to make sure that one team doesn't become over-dominant. One team can't be bought by a super-rich billionaire um, from a country with dodgy human rights, <laughs> and, and therefore not win, mentioning any names, <laughs> not mentioning any names, and therefore mm-hmm. win consecutive titles. You know that mm-hmm. it's not about the money; it's about the quality of the players, that you know, the coaching, the setup. Um, yeah, I, we watch with bated breath. I, and um, Claire, in terms of the future, and um, what does the future hold for Claire Balding? Because uh, you have a lot of uh, plates spinning at the moment, be it books or podcasts or really four shows or or commentating. What does the future hold and what do you want to get yourself to sort of throw yourself into? Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because I'm 51 now. And I think when you do, you suddenly find yourself in a decade of your life, you go, right, what am I here for? What am I, what is my purpose? And for all that, I think I was chasing a hamster wheel through my 20s and 30s and lots of people will feel the same about their career and you do because you have to in my 40s I suddenly started to relax a bit more have a bit more fun and that's you know when London 2012 happened and that kind of changed a lot of things for me but luckily I was in my 40s not my 20s so I kind of could I think probably enjoy it more, but also be very aware that it doesn't last. You know, your flavour of the month for a month. <laughs> you know, if you're lucky, you might be flavour of the month for a year, but it isn't going to last forever and ever and ever. The next hot thing comes along. So the stuff that matters to me is having some kind of permanence and writing gives me much more of that than television or radio. Although I say that, I've done ramblings on Radio 4 for 22 years now and I didn't think it would last longer than a year. So I've been phenomenally you know, fortunate in that degree to do a programme I love so much that lets me walk all over the country and meet amazing people and, you know, just chat with them. It's a lovely, lovely show to do. And the listeners who make contact with me, I know really enjoy it because it is so simple and it's very, it can be, it can be, yeah, it's very meditative, but people tell you things when you're walking that they wouldn't in a face-to-face interview. It's really it's really lovely. And so I'm very lucky to do that and and we'll keep doing that for as long as Radio 4 let me. And, you know, if and when they decide, you know, that it's had its day, I'll try and do that as a podcast for the National Trust. You know, I'm not going to stop walking, that's for sure, um, with, with a microphone in my hand. But yeah, there's certainly more books in the pipeline and I'm writing this autumn and winter I'll write a book called Isle of Dogs, which will take me all over the country meeting, you know, it's really just an excuse for me to go and see litters of puppies everywhere and meet dog breeders. So that's, <laughs> I've worked mm. out ways in which I could do mm. the things I really love and, and mm. bizarrely get paid for them. So that's amazing. Uh, I'm doing a kid's book as well this winter, which is about the theme being an animal Olympics. If animals were competing mm. at the Olympics, who would win gold medals in what? And then next year I will write a novel. So that's all very exciting. And the sports I do are very seasonal. So to be honest, I mean, I'll do Sports Personality of the Year in December. But apart from that, I won't do any sport on telly until Mm. next March or April. 
Crofts, I, I count as a sports event, so Crofts, yeah. and, <laughs> Crofts, Crofts in March, which will tie in well with Isle of Dogs, so I'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, I can, you know, I'm very, you know, as I said, I'm 51. I can, I'll do the things that matter to me. I do the things I believe in. I'm trying to develop a quiz show, but I also have got this passion for promoting women's sports and I will continue to do that and, and also try and help you know, new young talent and particularly women in sports broadcasting coming through as best I can if they ask me. Well, but, that leads me perfectly, Claire, onto my final question, which is what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are perhaps looking for a career in sport or indeed broadcasting? What advice yeah. would you have really relished when you were sort of starting out and perhaps you can impart on yeah, to the next gen? Or, or actually, I'll, I'll include writing in this as well. I think it's really important to get honest feedback from people you trust. Invest in yourself. So get somebody who will train you. And there are lots of private, there weren't, you know, when I was 20 and something, as I said, the BBC started this course for sports trainee. They hadn't had one before. If you can get experience in local radio, then do. You can now, obviously, self-publish. You can you can write blogs. You can film vlogs. You can edit your own stuff on laptops. You can have your own podcast. All of these things you can generate yourself. You're not reliant on some editor to commission a piece on women's football, for example. And my word, you'd have died holding your breath waiting for a male sports editor to have said, could you go and cover such and such game for me? You know, Chelsea women against Arsenal women. They just weren't doing it. So I think it's really exciting the the way in which technology can help you in your own ambition. And that's the other point. Don't be afraid to have ambition. Know where you ultimately want to end up. Don't take the obvious path always. You know, don't go for the big starry lights. Go to the places where you know that others aren't going. Write the articles about players that they don't know much about. Try and sell your idea to different magazines or to different websites. And ultimately, when you are commissioned to do something, don't do it for free. Your investment in yourself is in paying for your training. But when you write, you're trained. You know, they're paying everybody else. Don't be doing stuff that is sold in your name. Don't be doing that for nothing. And that happens all the time. And it happens a lot to women. You know, oh, would you just, would you just do this? Would you just do that? Well, hang on a second. For what? just because I like the sound of my own voice. No, it's a really important point that if you're going to be professional about it, make sure you're treated as a professional. You behave professionally in your approach, but make sure you are considered as such. And that means contracts as well. You know, you don't want to end up in court being sued for libel and you've got no protection. <laughs> be careful. Yes, be careful. Well, I, what I take from that is be ambitious and invest in yourself. I think yeah. two brilliant bits of advice. Claire Balding, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Claire Balding. If you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.